0: to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. As we all often do at the end of the year, we look back to review the year that was. But what about a review of humanity's evolution over time? With that, we welcome back Professor Michael Hudson. He's the author of The Bubble and Beyond, his most recent J is for Junk Economics, a witty take on economic doublespeak, and an editor and contributor to Labor in the Ancient World. Now, Michael, we've covered the ancient Near East in the past right through to Wall Street's excesses. But what about the period in between? What can you reveal about the nature of economic development in the Middle Ages?
1: Well, I've actually added a chapter to my book, uh, Forgive Them Their Debts, on the Byzantine Empire. And the Byzantine Empire uh, was the Eastern Roman Empire, and it's almost all been I- ignored because uh, people follow the end of the Roman Empire and then the collapse into Western Europe, which was into military, sort of really a barbarian, uh, small groupings of warlords who took over the land. And in the 11th century, when they began to form the crusades, and they went uh, east, looting their way across Hungary, uh, robbing all of the Christian ports, uh, killing other Christians, they finally got to Byzantium, which they were pledged to uh, support against the Arabs and the uh, Islam, who was threatening it, and they thought, this is the richest city we've ever seen, it's amazing, And so they looted it and burned it down and uh, essentially ended it. But what happened when the Roman Empire really uh, split in two under uh, Constantine, the Eastern Roman Empire, which is now basically part of Asia Minor, Turkey, had a completely different structure than occurred in Europe. The area, the whole country, was divided into military villages called themes, and all of the uh, citizens basically were given their own self-support land, and these themes were all led by military uh, commanders called strategoi, and essentially it was uh, uh, very egalitarian from the 7th century onward. Uh, the old Roman aristocracy was replaced by uh, the military uh, uh, themes, and uh, gradually the military leaders and commerce developed, and there was a bit of a recovery, and people used their wealth, uh, the rich people, to try to uh, recover land, and in the ninth and tenth century, you had some remarkable Byzantine emperors, starting with Basil I, who was a, uh, uh, a soldier who somehow got uh, uh, selected as appointed co-emperor when uh, the uh, his predecessor, Michael III, when he was 16 years old, uh, he became an adult, became emperor. And uh, the uh, the mother wanted him to marry a, a local girl, but he wanted to marry someone else. So uh, he he couldn't marry her. So technically he uh, had this soldier, who was a, a very brave guy at court, Basil, nominally marry her and uh, gave him his own sister as a mister and uh, uh, soon enough, within a year, Basil had got rid of Michael and uh, took over and saw. well, wait a minute. We've really got to stop this uh, takeover by the dinatoi, uh, the big landlords uh, of the time, the military leaders who were trying to grab uh, all of the land. And he was followed by another, uh, after uh, some not-too-good emperors, by Romanos I, who was another soldier who got in in another funny way, usually uh, because of a palace intrigue, and uh, decided, okay, we're going to begin issuing laws. Uh, There was a very cold winter in the year 900— 28 and 29. And it was so cold that a lot of the poor people in the villages had to begin relinquishing their lands uh, just to get food. Credit wasn't that important, lending wasn't as important as it was in antiquity. So uh, Romanos, uh, and then again a later emperor, Basil Second, issued a whole series of laws nullifying the takeover of land by the, uh, the landlords who got it from the poor, restoring, the land to basically the uh, the citizen soldiery so that all of the citizens had their own self-support land, with each family having to supply one soldier uh, and also supply taxes and labor. So the entire uh, basis of the Byzantine Empire that led led them to take off was not uh, the rich people uh, uh, conducting commerce, uh, because the commerce was largely in the hands of the Italians who had a monopoly. Uh, It was in the hands of small villages creating a crop surplus, and it was a self-sufficient economy that was remarkably uh, productive. Well, gradually, as it got richer and richer, by the uh, late 10th century, the uh, military uh, leaders uh, got together, and one military leader came and tried to uh, get his own army, because all of the strategy of these military villages had their own, and most of these came from Asia Minor. Uh, to make a long story short, Basil defeated them, and they had a makeup meal. And Basil said, "What should I do in order to, you know uh, make the country prosperous and you know keep defending? And the general uh, was reported by the Psellus, who was a one of the chroniclers to say, Well, I'm going to tell you something that sounds strange for general to say." You have to get rid of all the rich people. You have to really burden them. You have to make sure they don't have any money. You have to keep them down. And only by keeping the wealthy people down are you going to prevent the wealth from rising up as a threat to the uh, throne is a threat to your power, and only in that way can you continue to support widespread land ownership and widespread prosperity, so that everybody can support themselves. Otherwise, if you don't get rid of the uh, uh, the rich families who are intrinsically your enemies, you're going to have them overthrow you. And uh, uh, sure enough, after Basil died, there was a series of weak emperors and. The rich families always wanted to push a very weak ruler, and it's that way all throughout history. It's in the nature of wealthy families, whether their wealth is finance or real estate, to want to back rulers that are too weak to regulate them, too weak to tax them, too weak to prevent them from reducing the rest of the population uh, to serfdom. Well, Mm -hmm. Byzantium never had serfdom, Uh, but they did have a dependency of uh, people who would lose their land and have to become dependents or clients uh, of the wealthy landowners. And so by the 11th and 12th century, uh, you had a series of very weak emperors unable to tax the rich people. They just stopped paying taxes. That's another thing, that if rich people get enough power, the first thing they do is stop paying taxes, and this forces the government either to cut back the army, to cut back in local spending, or to uh, tax the poor people. Well, uh, Byzantium did both, and the result was by the time that these these straggling crusaders, uh, really a bunch of landless, uh, homeless uh, people just wanting to grab things, got to Byzantium, they just decided to loot it and uh, uh, of course that ultimately paved the way for uh, uh, later invasions from the East.
0: Wow Michael quite some story there. Uh, I was expecting you'd be talking more about the church from that period and their dominance uh, rather than the military.
1: Well the reason I didn't do that was the church was not dominant in the Byzantine Empire. In fact uh, uh, most of the emperors would have have their second son. What would they do with a second son? they'd castrate him. Because if the son son was castrated, he couldn't be an emperor. But he could be the head of the Eastern Church. So uh, most of the emperors would have their second, or one of their castrated sons, be appointed the head of the the Eastern Church, which is now Greek Orthodox uh, uh, Church. And uh, so it was the palace that controlled the church, unlike the case in Europe, where it was the church that uh, dominated uh, the secular rulers.
0: Yes, well, that, that was the perspective I was imagining you'd tell because uh, I'm wanting to hear more about how the role of Jubilee and the debt Jubilees uh, were, they were deterred as a public policy. How did that actually evolve through this period?
1: well one of the effects of christianity uh both east and west was to ban the charging of interest and later it was permitted for uh, foreign exchange dealings but if you don't have interest you're not going to have uh, much of a buildup in debt Uh, people don't like to lend people money if they can't get interest for it so uh debt was not important anywhere near as important in the byzantine empire as uh just plain having uh having food and having possessions, and when a winter came along, for four months the land was frozen and the sea froze over in 929, and again in 989. Uh, So these uh, really cold winters forced people in to sell their land just to get food. So the emperors banned land transfers. They said after after the winter of 928, no transfer of land to the rich people, no transfer of land outside of the local village is legal. Everything is returned. Uh, now, that was like a jubilee, except they didn't have to cancel debts because debts didn't uh, play a uh, role in that. But it was a jubilee, and in fact, the, uh, the emperors very clearly linked what they were doing to the Bible, saying, you know, we're, we're uh, restoring the lands back just like uh, in biblical times. So it was a land uh, uh, restoration of land rights to the uh, families that traditionally held them in uh, these villages.
0: Mm. What about the Byzantine Dark Ages and uh, some of these early uh, Muslim conquests around the 800 period?
1: It was already in the 7th century. You had uh, th- uh, the emperors establish the theme system. And to defend themselves against the invasions, you know, what do you do if it, it, you're all spread out? Now, th- there weren't really cities. in the. Uh, uh, first of all, it wasn't really a Dark Age in the Byzantine. The Dark Age was in the West. The Dark Age was not in the Eastern Roman Empire. That continued to be fairly thriving, but what what do you do if you want to uh, uh, if you don't have real cities? The town, the villages they had, the towns were fortified. Really, it was very much like in Babylonian times. Uh, towns had a minimum uh, group of sort of local industries. There was probably a shoemaker there and somebody who. Made baskets and you know clothes and uh, things like that, but there w- there were no real cities like there were in uh, Greece and Rome. So it was uh, uh, the whole area was 95 percent rural, and uh, people who lived in these small towns went out to the country to farm the land every day. So the the towns were just where the farmers lived uh, and grouped together. Uh, they were fortified, and the Byzantine Empire defended this territory by having all of the citizens armed and organized into these themes, meaning they they, they organized it uh, really for self-defense, and the self-defense depended on a fairly equal division of income. Once the uh, inequality spread, and you had the wealthy people saying, what do we want to do with our wealth? Number one, we want the land, and why do we want the land? We want the crop surplus. and if they got the crop surplus then this crop surplus no longer was able to be paid as taxes to uh the uh uh, constantinople uh palace and so right there you have inequality becoming the greatest threat to the palace and its desire to preserve this land-tenured uh, citizenry. Well, by the 11th and 12th century, when the Crusaders began to come, already you had the ending of the themes. You had the military themes were taken over by the large uh, estates of the uh, wealthy landowners who who uh, got uh, the land of the. Uh, Uh, the former village uh, members and had them all as sort of dependents they weren't tied to the land as in western europe there wasn't serfdom but uh, the only way that these guys could survive local families who were poor uh, when the crops failed was to become dependents and really join the armies of uh, these large uh, uh, magnets. Now, the magnets, the, li- the big men, were the military leaders. And so, basically, they had their own army. So, instead of a Byzantine army, you had the army of rich people in one con- one part of Asia Minor after another, uh, Cappadocia, uh, other parts. So, basically, uh, you have, there's an inherent antagonism between private wealth that wants to gain all the uh land and income and money for itself. And the government that wants stability and wants to preserve self-sufficiency is the most uh, effective way of uh, basically defending against the foreigners who were always pressing in. You had the, the, the... Islamic uh, uh, Arabs coming in from the east, Uh, you had increasingly northerners, uh, northern Europeans coming in from France, uh, trying to conquer. So all of this was destroyed as inequality spread. And finally, uh, the emperors were just more interested in dissipation of their own uh, uh, life and life fell apart.
0: Listeners, wouldn't you love to be at the Peabody Museum at Harvard University uh, listening to Michael Hudson and some of these other incredible uh, archaeological historians? And, uh, Michael, fantastic to hear this story. And I'm interested to hear how these armies were actually funded. In one of our previous interviews on the ancient Near East, you introduced me to the concept of corvée labour, which was essentially large landholders being uh, expected to provide a certain amount of labour per land holdings. Now, how were these big armies funded when there weren't really big towns, there wasn't uh, you know, the monetary system so well established, uh, taxation so forth? Well, You've got it all
1: backwards, like most Georgists. Uh, It's almost (laughs) impossible for a Georgist to understand this because uh, they're anti-tax people. uh, They're against government. But the fact is the tax need came first. Land came second. Uh, What did Byzantium do? It said, first of all, we need men to fight to defend us, and second, we need crops and taxes. How do we arrange this? They assigned lands to the village, equal amounts of land, the same way they did in Babylonia. From Babylonia in the third, uh, second millennium BC, to Byzantium, the same thing. The palace said, here's how much uh, labor we, we need, Here's here's the taxes, so we'll assign X amount of land, this amount of is self-support land, and if you're going to, if we uh, assign you this land, then you have a reciprocal responsibility. And that responsibility is to pay the tax uh, in the form of labor, because we don't have, uh, they, they wasn't monetized really until the 11th century. You have to provide labor, and you have to serve in the army. That was uh, the kind of tax. Now, I know you, Georgias, hate taxes, but by hating taxes, you really hate property and you hate the concept of land. And unless you realise that come the, on, the uh, fiscal needs on. came first, you're not going to understand that uh, taxes and land go together.
0: Oh, I'm going to hit you with a question soon. As I'm going to get you back for that. But uh, let's carry on because... Uh, uh, you're hinting at the 11th century and we're coming up to the enclosures, another period where... Oh, that was much later. That was much
1: later. That was in England. And
0: yeah, was 15, yeah, 14, 1500s. Different.
1: The Eastern Empire, uh, uh, Western Europe is very different from uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. They They had completely different trajectories. Yes. And Eastern Europe was where it was more egalitarian. That's where that was the real continuity with uh, antiquity. Western Europe was uh, uh, the result of really the collapse of Rome into just uh, rival warlord uh, gangs.
0: Yeah, this is interesting because I've mainly heard about the more English side of uh, the the Dark Ages and what happened there. And and you're taking us through where the true power base was in the Middle East. But. I still want to get back to this question. How did the role of Jubilee really slip from being a regular occurrence?
1: Well, it began uh, with the the split within Judaism when you had the the mainstream rabbis who were led by Hillel in uh, Judah supported uh, the wealthy Jews. And uh, uh, against that, you had sort of the bulk of the Jewish population. There was a group that followed uh, Melchizedek, uh, and then Jesus saying, wait a minute. Uh, He was denouncing the Pharisees, of which uh, Hillel was, and he was urging uh, for a debt cancellation. What ended the debt cancellations were the use of violence. Throughout antiquity, every major leader who canceled the debt was murdered usually by the Romans. Uh, For instance, in the third century BC, uh, the two two Spartan kings, uh, Aegis and Cleomenes, uh, were murdered for uh, canceling the debts. In Rome, the uh, advocates of uh, debtors uh, were uh, murdered. Uh, for a whole century between the, the killing of the Gracchi brothers, 133 BC, down to uh, Augustus coming in in 29 BC, you had a whole century of basically political murder. So the wealthy vested interests in all times have always uh, used force and political assassination in order to attack the, the people who, uh, political leaders who wanted to cancel the debts or protect the debtors or redistribute the land and return the land uh, to the people at large. So violence has always played a major political role in changing the legal system. In Rome, this became notorious, and uh, the effect in Rome was so devastating that uh, money itself pretty much disappeared during uh, the post-Roman dark ages in Europe, except for the rich people who used money to buy uh, uh, luxury goods, uh, mainly from Arab uh, and Near Eastern traders. But for the population at large, it reverted to barter. So barter is sort of the final stage of uh, uh, the credit system, money, uh, money began as a means of paying debts in the third millennium and second millennium B.C., then gradually uh, m- uh, money was used by the population at large. And finally, when the creditors stripped money away from the economy by getting it all in their own hands, all that was left was uh, barter. So the, the evolutionary stage goes from credit to money to a barter economy, uh, vice versa. Again, the opposite of what the Austrian school uh, believes.
0: And that's according to uh, the, the histories you've studied over thousands and thousands of years. Right, mm. right. and that,
1: that will be in, the, in my book when it comes out uh, in, in March or April, uh, Forgive Them Their
0: debts. Very good. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to bring us up into the modern era, and uh, I'm... I'm just wanting your perspective on uh, this undermining of the wealthy on uh, the checks and balances that the state can play. And uh, from your perch, uh, is the state at its weakest point you, you've you ever seen? Or is uh, there have been periods back in, in these military ages, in the dark ages, where the state was was lower i sort of thought that the church was playing that role uh, as the state back in those times but uh, today where do we sit
1: well when you say the state is getting weak what you mean is are the good functions of government the functions that people think government should do build infrastructure support income to let everybody uh, survive but the objective uh, that of the wealthy people that i described in the byzantine empire is to take over the state so you could say now the state is bet stronger than it ever has been before for instance libertarians say that they're anti-state but what they really want is a very centralized totalitarian state and the totalitarian every economy is planned every economy looks forward and, and somebody is allocating resources and if the government does not play this role of forward planner and taxer and allocator of resources, then this role passes to the financial sector. So today, the financial sector is the state. Uh, You have Donald Trump being very weak. Except for the, his ability to have appointed almost an entire cabinet of Goldman Sachs officials to run the economy on behalf of the creditors, Australia is, in a way, you could say, it's a totalitarian state uh, where even the educational system is run totally by the bank, by the London and Wall Street bankers. So that what you imagine helps you is actually what the bankers in London and uh, New York, uh, you know, tell your politicians say and fill your universities with. And uh, that's why it's almost impossible for an Australian to uh, go to a university and learn about economics. You had one very good uh, professor there, Steve Kane and uh, they couldn't really fire him because he had tenure. So what did they do at the University of Western Sydney? They close the entire economics department down. So if, if Australians somehow believe that the way to get rich is to give money to the financial sector, then you're going to be devastated and you don't realize that the state around you is invisible uh, and it's controlling your mind. It's not a police state. You don't need that if the people are so docile and so unaware of how the world really works that uh, you have them just doing your bidding without any force, any control. Don't even need religion for it. All you need is ideological trammels.
0: Yeah, that was shocking what's happened to Steve Keen and similar things have happened uh, down at Deakin University that had a very innovative political science stream there as well. So, uh, yeah, it's it's not pretty what's happening in uh, university where people are paying 15, 20 grand a year to study to learn how to uh, parrot what Wall Street wants. But yeah, you, you talk about the dominance of the bankers, Michael, and uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia recently released their, their monthly chart pack and I checked out the total banking profits in Australia were $20 billion. Now, the Australian Bureau of Statistics also uh, released the one of the only measures of land value in the world and it revealed that... Australian land values had increased by $594 billion in the last 12 months and uh, this was the sec- huh. second highest on record. Now, you have stated many times that uh, interest takes the majority of the rent. Now, there's the banking profits at $20 billion versus the economic rents of land at $594 billion. What do you say to that?
1: Well, first of all, the question is, why has, uh, have uh, Australian land prices go- been going up? The reason they've been going up isn't that there are more people in Australia. It's that banks are lending money to people to bid up the price, and if, if banks uh, are willing to lend buyers, more and more money to buy a house to outbid other people who want to buy a house or other businesses that want to buy a commercial property then uh, a prop uh, land and uh, real estate is worth whatever a bank is willing to lend, and banks have lent lend more and more. Bank profits are not only interest, they're also capital gains, they take their fees, they also expense a lot of uh, their income. So uh, you can be sure that uh, what, when uh, Australians think, oh, the value of my uh, house is going up, how much is their debt going up? And the question is, is the debt uh, that Australians owe going up more rapidly than the value uh, of their property? And at a certain point, the uh, the debt comes to – it remains – you have a, a collapse of property prices when the economy collapses, and all of a sudden the debts remain in place. And the means to pay them uh, are negative. In other words, you have negative equity. The property people can sell their homes for is not enough to pay the mortgage. Now, that's the condition that American property was in after 2008. And uh, there was 9 or 10 million American families lost their homes as a result of this. They couldn't borrow enough to keep uh, uh, paying the banks. Michael.
0: The corollary to your statement that property is only worth uh, what banks will lend against it uh, is that uh, property is only worth what governments won't tax it. You said that Georgians uh, don't believe in tax, but hang on. I want to hammer you on this. If we tax the land first, there's nothing there to capitalise for banks to lend for. So that's what needs to be said first.
1: You're absolutely right. It's the... The economy and the society that creates the land value. This should be the natural tax base of society, as Adam Smith said, as as uh, the physiocratic uh, leader Canay said, John Stuart Mill, uh, all the 19th century people said this, right. and they were, and then they were all fought against by Henry George, who uh, uh, denounced them all and said, no, no, there is no such thing as rent. There's no, because in order to describe rent, you have to have a value theory, and uh, George, George have no, if no value in price theory and without defining rent is the excess of price over what the actual cost uh, of uh, making uh, real estate is, you don't have any way of defining rent. So George essentially blocked out, he destroyed the whole 19th century movement to tax the land uh, by defining rent. He uh, he brought ignorance into the discussion come and on, flooded come
0: it. on. How can you <laughs> say that when he had the formula of profit minus rent equals wages plus interest? That was a beautifully f- formula that summed up how the economy works. It didn't include debt, which I know you're going to come at, but. George
1: was almost Orwellian in his destruction of the English language. He called, in, the word he used for profits was interest. He, he he conflated finance capitalism with industrial capitalism, and where the whole rest of the 19th century followed uh, Marx and other economists saying, look, we're, uh, we're entering a financial stage, uh, and uh, the question is, the relationship between corporate profits and the interest that has to be financial interest George says there's no such thing as finance. I have a world that operates on barter, and all my theories apply to a barter world. So all of a sudden, he talks about Desert Island uh, uh, economics, a a (laughs) a parallel universe that never existed that operates on barter without money, without debt. And uh, all of the people who first supported him, who started Henry George Clubs in America, they said, oh, my God, how could the guy be such a dummy? And they broke from him.
0: I'm going to hit you back on this point, though. You're saying that debt and finance is the key. I've just shown you that banking profits are 1 one thirtieth 1 of the importance to land-related rents in Australia this year. So please... You know, you've got to get the land story right first. It's too <laughs> sexy. It's too easy to talk banking stuff. Everyone flocks at your feet when you talk at that. But barely anyone is pointing back to this story. Nowhere else on the planet is recording land values to the accuracy here in Australia, $600 billion versus $20 billion. There you go. you got, you know, answer that question for me now. How is interest more important when it's one-thirtieth of the profits that landholders receive.
1: On the face of it, that doesn't make any sense at all. That statistic doesn't. Because uh, if the land is uh, owned largely on mortgage, and if the land is worth that much, then the land rent must be uh, much larger than that, uh,
0: no, that's just I, I the economic rents. But the value of the 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 total land value is uh, something like five point four trillion dollars.
1: Okay, then you you would imagine at what rate of return? Suppose it's say five percent rate of return, which is something like your mortgage would be. That should be uh, what two hundred fifty. Uh, it doesn't make it doesn't make the statistics don't make any sense. I'd have to look at.
0: We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to bring you this special notice. Ah, The radio show announces prerogative. I'm jumping in here. Isn't it fun doing an interview with Michael and getting slammed left, right and centre? Well, (laughs) a bit of a fight back here. I'm just going to update you with a few emails that have happened since this broadcast. And essentially, when you do crunch the numbers on 5.76 trillion land values with 65% of that under mortgage it's close to the 20 billion dollar sort of mark I presented from the RBA chart pack so the numbers aren't lying and uh, if you do look at the system of national accounts and look at table 16 so it's 5206 016 financial corporations income account current prices you'll see that total gross income amounts to a mere $334 billion versus the $594 billion in land rents. So this little debate Michael and I and a few others have been having for a while. So uh, do banks take all of the rent or not? Well, let's let those figures do the talking and uh, we'll stay tuned uh, for our next Michael Hudson interview. All right, let's get back to uh, this discussion.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, I am uh, having a group uh, that I put together in Washington uh, in February, and we are going to look at international comparisons. And we actually had a meeting yesterday in New York with a a U.N. economist and uh, uh, some other economists and uh, maybe we'll try to look at the Australian data. But there's something that doesn't make sense in the statistics that you that you say. The very fact that land prices can go up so much isn't because all of a sudden uh, that uh, land is worth much more, it's because of, of credit. And you you pointed out in your uh, your publications that uh, this increase in credit and mortgage, uh, easier and easier mortgages that have been pushing up uh, the land prices to the effect that uh, it costs more and more of the Australians' wages just to pay for housing. And how on earth can Australians develop a, an export industry or be competitive in the world economy when they have to pay so much more Uh, in home ownership costs or rent than uh, exists in other countries.
0: Yeah, it's staggering how long it's going on for. And, you know, now we've got 40-year mortgages. I can, you know, multi-generational mortgages are just around the corner. And I dare say that's what's going to happen. We're not going to have any debt jubilee. Uh, More and more people are talking about the need for land taxes. But until I can get Australia's comedians talking about it, it's hardly going to be uh, a policy driver. The bureaucrats know, the politicians know, but uh, your everyday uh, uh, racist bogan has no idea about it. So uh, that's the problem we face. How- to- L- Let me
1: explain how, how the system works. Uh, if a, uh, usually, certainly in America years ago, people, uh, Australians, anybody else, are going to uh, say they're getting the first job, they're in their twenties. They have a choice, do they rent or do they buy? Now, traditionally, back 50 years ago, the if you would buy, they would set the mortgage that you'd pay roughly equal to uh, what the rent would be. So you have a choice. You could pay either, say, $1,000 a month in rent, or you could take on a mortgage, and the interest and amortization was $1,000 a month. So you'd be able to take on a debt and you'd pay the same amount for homeownership. Now, all of a sudden, now imagine that uh, the banks, at that time, the banks would lend up to 25% of somebody's income. They had a limit if uh, you you couldn't buy a house and pay more than 25% in income because they wouldn't lend to you. But now the banks will lend up to 43% of your income and they'll make, instead of making the loan paid off in 30 years, as you point out, they stretch it way out uh, they have all sorts of interest subsidies, so now you're able to borrow a lot more to buy a building. Well, all of a sudden, this increases real estate prices. So now you're now suppose you're in in your 20s and you say, do I rent or buy? Well, all of a sudden, it costs so much more to buy that the absentee owners, the uh, who own uh, rental properties, can say, aha! Instead of charging you a thousand dollars a month. Uh, now I can charge you $2,000 a month because if you buy the, uh, the houses are so much more expensive, that's what you would have to pay to take out a bank loan to buy this expensive property. So if the inflation of real estate prices by easy credit and bank subsidy and tax policy, leaving more and more uh, available for the uh, bank to be paid as interest to the banks, if that uh, rising house price makes an umbrella that uh, lifts the what the, uh, rent uh, the landlords can charge uh, to renters so that's why it's so dangerous to Australia for renters as well to have this real estate bubble
0: the problem we've got is not only are they not taxing the land but they've got all of these tax incentives going the other way encouraging people to flock to real estate uh,
1: but but there again wait a minute you're contradicting yourself they're not flocking to real estate they're flocking to the banks You go to, it's the banks they're working for. The banks are the ones who end up getting all of the land value instead of the government so here this we're back to what i said was in byzantium there's a choice who's going to get the land value will it be the government or will it be uh the banks now what the georgians didn't realize is that the supporter of the land behind the landlords pushing uh their the landlords rights are the banks because the banks know that the landlords will end up paying the rent to the banks that that was the missing element that the Georges never got. They got they wow. didn't. They missed the role of the banks.
0: According to those numbers I've quoted, uh, you still got to deal with the land problem first. So you know we can have our point of difference there. But the tragedy we've got is that uh, house prices are falling, and of course governments have now enacted the latest version of the greater fool and uh, they've given tax uh, discounts to first home buyers right at the peak of the property bubble. So all these young youngsters who have no, very poor financial literacy, perhaps they've been locked out and they're just frustrated with the system and they're jumping in, they're gonna be the patsies, the greater fools stuck with uh, these record high mortgages uh, on casualized wages. Well, somebody's
1: not a fool there, and if they're illiterate, then the product of the Australian educational system is economic illiteracy that's the purpose of education not to tell students how to calculate uh, how to get a house how to deal with finance and the role of finance in the economy it's blocked out of uh, what they're taught this should be what education is all about how are they going to cope when they get a job how are they going to get a house and what's the uh, what kind of tax system and government operation will help them instead of help the banks none of that is what your education's about no wonder you're in a mess.
0: Michael Hudson, thanks very much for joining us here. Good sparring with you. Uh, it's always uh, a pleasure. And, yeah, we've got to stay on our toes. Uh, ideologies do trap us in certain phases, and uh, we need to move with the times and be flexible enough. But uh, I also hope that, you know, raw numbers do, do tell a real story.
1: Well, it's re- it's always good to talk to you, and I can't help teasing you. Uh, uh, I wish the Georges would just uh, read Marx and get with it.
0: <laughs> End of line. Always good to have Michael Hudson on the show. Always great to have your support. Thanks for another fantastic year here on The Renegades. The collage show next week, and then I'm taking a few weeks off. See you back in early January.